0: This morning, I'd like to speak to you from the subject, Resurrected Living. And I want us to look at the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. The book of Colossians was written by the Apostle Paul to a very young church, a church that was young in their faith. They were recent converts to Christianity. Paul himself had never uh, visited the church Uh, as far as we know, uh, but it was planted by a man named Epaphras, as you see in chapter 1, verse 7. The purpose of Paul writing the letter was to call this particular congregation, as through the scripture, you are also now being called to maturity, to grow up and become mature in Christ Jesus. In chapter 1, verse 28, you see this where Paul says, Him, meaning Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And notice uh, the the emphasis there. Paul is preaching Jesus in order that you might become more like Jesus. Uh, Many theologians have identified In chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, the key verses to the entire letter. There, Paul says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And so we see that this call to maturity undergirds this letter's message. It is the letter's message as a whole. Um, And in chapter 3, you see that Paul very practically highlights how to go about pursuing that maturity he calls us to. There are certain things today, as there were back then, that threaten Uh, your growth and maturity. One of the things that Paul highlights uh, was the way Judaism was at that time. It had devolved into merely an external religion with no substance and no power for change. Someone illustrated it as a church front that has the beautiful tile and brick and the the nice doors that are shiny and painted fresh. But then when you walk through the door, there's nothing there. It's just an empty lot. There's no substance. There's There's nothing there. It's just hollow. It's really deceptive. It looks wonderful. It looks beautiful. But there's nothing there. And Paul wants to keep you, as a follower of Jesus Christ, from being a Christian front. A front for Christ with no substance of Christ within, no real power that leads you to be like Jesus. One of the other things that threatened real growth and maturity then and now was this kind of experience, going from one spiritual experience to another spiritual experience and... um, but there's no substance there. There's nothing there of Christ. It's just a feeling or, or a, a mysticism. Another thing that threatened it was this sort of hardcore discipline. Don't do that and don't touch this and don't, don't go there and, and don't do this and all of these rules, rules, rules. But yet they have no power to stop you from indulging in the flesh. And so Paul doesn't want you to be trapped just like he didn't want the people here to be trapped in these sort of religious-looking ways of living but have no substance. They have no Christ. And so he says in chapter 3, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, where Christ is. What's going on where Christ is? Well, one of the obvious things that's going on where Christ is, is adoration. You read Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 through 14, and the Lamb of God is being worshipped. He's being Uh, rejoiced in. That's what it means to seek the things that are above, where Christ is. It's to seek to rejoice in Him, to adore Him. And why would you do that? Well, the book of Revelation, chapter 5, talks about the reason why. Because the Lamb is worthy. He's paid the debt for your sin. And you see that when it says that He is, where Christ is, seated. He's seated at the right hand of God. Remember the priests in the Old Covenant? They were always standing. They never sat down because there were so many more sacrifices that needed to be made. They couldn't sit down. But when Jesus came and offered himself as a once-for-all sacrifice, the debt was paid in full, and he took his seat because there was nothing else that needed to be done. He accomplished redemption Completely. And so what Paul means when he says seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He's saying seek to appropriate in your daily life the gospel. The finished work of Jesus Christ. Respond to it. React to it. Live in light of that accomplished work. Then he says set your mind on things that are above. Not on things that are on the earth. Set your mind on things above. And notice how he contrasts the things that are above with the things that are on the earth. And as we'll see in this chapter, in verses 5 through 11, he talks about the things that are on the earth. And in, and in, and in verses 12 through 17, he talks about the things that are in heaven. So when he talks about setting your mind on things that are above, not on the things on the earth, he's talking about your character. He's saying there's certain things that you need to get rid of in your life, the earthly things. They need to be put to death. They need to be put away. And there's certain things that need to be put on, the heavenly things, the characteristics of Jesus Christ himself, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Those are the things that you need to put on. And that's the path to true spiritual maturity. But before he gets there, he says that there are four things that motivate this pursuit in your life. And you see that in verses 3 and 4. It says, for you have died, number one. You've died. You've died to that old way of external religion. You've died to that old way of mysticism and just experiences. You've died to this sort of self-reliant depending on yourself to do a better job next time. You die to sin as well. Paul said it like this in another place in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And so Paul is saying that someone who has died, and and Christ is now alive in them, and they're living their life in faith in Jesus, everything that they do is to be a response to the Son of God's love for them. The Son of God's prior giving himself up for them. Our life is supposed to flow from Calvary. You die. That's the first motivation for pursuing this maturity. The second thing is that your life is hidden with Christ in God. You've been united to Jesus in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. And so you're called to live a life united to Jesus, drawing upon Jesus. He's the vine; You're the branches abiding in him and he in you. Not only that, but the third thing is that when Christ, who is your life, Jesus is your life. Paul said it like this in another place, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So his whole life was wrapped up in Jesus Christ. His whole life was set to serve the advancement of Jesus Christ. When Christ, who is your life, the fourth thing is that when He appears, you also will appear with Him in glory. And so, like like the Apostle John said in 1 John 3 of his letter, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. In verse 2, uh, of chapter 3 of 1 John, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. What John is saying, what Paul is saying, is that the very thought of Jesus appearing for you is a sanctifying thought. It actually, it actually pushes sanctification deeply into your life, of hoping in, in in the certainty of Christ appearing. That that hope sanctifies you. It draws you closer into conformity to Jesus Christ. So there are the four things that motivate this pursuit of maturity. Then he calls you, in verses 5 through 11, to put to death, in verse 5, to put away, in verse 8, to put off, in verse 9, these earthly things. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. So he calls you to put these things to death. And he separates these two lists into sexual sins and social sins. Because both categories of sin are an affront to the gospel and in particular to the power of the resurrection sexual sins are an affront to the fact that you've been purchased by Jesus Christ you were bought with a price therefore you are bound to glorify God in your body and it's also an affront to the dominion of Jesus Christ Because Jesus suffered and died, he has been made Lord over all. But sexual sins are an affront to that because they try to lead you to believe that that your body is yours and you own your body. But the Bible says you are not your own. You've been bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. And sexual immorality is any sex outside of the divinely instituted and ordained and honored uh, one man married to one woman for life. Anything outside of that, any sex outside of that, is, is, is dishonorable, is sinful in God's sight. And, and the age in which we live is so racked with deviant forms of sexual immorality. But we are called to, uh, to put to death sexual immorality. Any kind of thought of sexual immorality, pornography, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, it's all uh, to be put to death. And then impurity, which deals with the pollution that results from being sexually immoral. Passion, which is the uncontrolled sexual urges. Evil desires, the domineering evil desires that are all wrapped up in, this, in these sexual sins. Christians are being told to put these things to death in their life. And covetousness is also highlighted. Um, wanting more and treating, and, and it's, uh, covetousness is, is, is identified as idolatry. Treating something or treating someone as if they're God, as if that your life depends on and is wrapped up and finds meaning in this thing or this other person when it should only uh, be that way towards God himself. There's all kinds of things that want to compete in your life with the true God. And Paul is saying, put these things to death. And on account of these things, verse 6, the wrath of God is coming. And, and this shows how, how inconsistent these, these types of behaviors are for the Christian. We have been redeemed from the wrath of God. There's no more condemnation for us. So how inappropriate it would be to be involved in these sort of behaviors that God's wrath is coming against these very things. And then in verse 7, it talks about our former life. In these, you too once walked. We once were wrapped up in these things. We once lived in them, as it says in verse 7. It was part of who we were, but in Christ we've been changed. In Christ we have been redeemed. Verse verse 8 goes into the social sins. But now you must put them all away. Um, And and social sins are um, an affront to the gospel, an affront to the resurrection, because they are an affront to the unity that we have in Jesus Christ. Anger and wrath and malice disturb the unity and the harmony of relationships. But in Jesus Christ, that unity was, was Restore. We've been reconciled, not only to God, but reconciled to one another. We've been made one in Christ Jesus. We're members of the same body in Jesus Christ. We're, we're, we're all part of the same body. So you have a body. You were born with a body. And if something goes wrong with your body, every other member of your body gathers together to help support that weak member. If you bang your foot and you stub your toe, your whole body readjusts itself so that so that that toe gets the comfort and the, and the strength it needs to recuperate. And so, uh, the very fact that in Christ we have been made members of one another and are called to to adjust ourselves and to love one another in the body of Christ, these social sins are standing directly opposed to. Uh, this this uh, the gospel outflow in, in our social life with one another. Anger uh, deals with the constant hatred where there should be love. Wrath deals with anger when it's unchecked and leads to words and actions of hostility. Malice is evil intended to do harm to another person. It's premeditated. It's uh, a slander. It's blasphemy of the character or reputation of another person, it's character assassination, obscene talk, or words, as someone said, words that pollute you and pollute the hearers, contaminated speech, and let your words be edifying and building up of people. The list is rounded off with lying. Lying, as you know, is uh, the devil's mother tongue. He's the father of lies. Whereas you're connected with Jesus Christ, and he is the truth, literally the embodiment of truth. His name is the truth. And so we're called to to have to put away, as it says, uh, these things to put them off, to put them away, to put them to death. and and the, the, the other reason it's given uh, is because uh, we are being in verse 10, we are being renewed in knowledge after the image of our creator. We're called to be like Jesus. He's at work within us by his spirit, making us more like himself. And so it's not like this. there's an uphill battle where we have to rely on ourselves. And we have to depend on ourselves to pull this off. No, the the Lord Jesus himself, by the Spirit of God, is within us creating the desire and creating the power within us to put these things to death. And we have the gospel accomplished as the foundation uh, from which we can work in the Spirit and see these things actually put to death in our life. We have a, a, a Christ an advocate who sits above interceding for us when we fall on our face morally. We can run back to him. We can plead with him as he pleads with the Father. And we know that our sins are forgiven and changed. We're assured uh, of our, of his love for us. As it says in Romans eight thirty four. he's seated at the right hand of God. Uh, and, and who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ. And so then we are uh, called to uh, this, this renewal, to be restored to the likeness of Jesus Christ. And it says in verse 11, here there is not Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, no matter what kind of way you categorize yourself. How do you identify yourself? Uh, the Bible says here to identify yourself with Jesus Christ because Christ is in you and Christ is, is the, main, the main one. Christ is all and he's in awe of those who believe in him. So it's not about identifying yourself, particularly according to your ethnicity or where you come from or what you do. I signed up uh, this past week for the coronavirus and they asked me uh, what my race was. Not for the coronavirus, but for the vaccine. I don't sign up for the virus. Nobody should sign up for the virus. But I signed up for the vaccine and they said, What's your race? And I said, I'm chosen. And they said, no, your race. I said, my race is chosen. I'm a holy, part of a holy nation, a chosen race, a peculiar people. And they said, amen, brother. And they said, I'll choose other. I said, that's good enough. But, but in light of this, this Christ being in awe, we are verses 12 through following to put on. Let's look at those verses. Chapter 3 of Colossians, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving, thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So we see here the characteristics that we're supposed to put on. These characteristics are the characteristics of Christ Himself. But prior to even talking about them, uh, Paul reminds us again of our identity. We're God's chosen ones. We're chosen because it's God's grace that chose us. God didn't choose you because you were lovely. He didn't choose you because he saw something in you wonderful. He chose you out of grace. There was nothing in you that commended you to him. But it was the grace of God by which he chose you. And you're holy. You're set apart by God, set apart for God, set apart from sin, and, and he's, he did that. Uh, it, was, it was completely unconditional, and you're beloved. You're loved by God. We love because he first loved us. Someone one time said, God did not love us because we were lovely. He, he loved us to make us lovely. We were actually a, a, a tragedy. Our whole story, our whole history, was nothing but a horror story, but God came along and showed his love to us in our sin, in our twistedness, in our perversion, and that's what makes us lovely. And so, as ones who are beloved, as ones who are made holy, as ones who are chosen, put on compassionate hearts. How could we not put on a compassionate heart when we think about the compassion with which God has handled us? this this heart moved uh, to, to love, like the Good Samaritan, is a perfect picture of a compassionate heart. And also uh, kindness. You think about Joseph and how his brothers treated him, and how he still insisted on being kind to them. That's the type of kindness is actively loving someone, actively seeking the benefit of someone, even if they've hurt you. Humility, the humble-mindedness that Jesus had of counting other people more significant than yourself. The humble-mindedness that says, I'm going to serve and not look for thank yous, not look for accolades, just serve to be like Jesus, to grow up and become more like him. And meekness. Meekness is, as you know, you are a limited addition. A limited addition. You could say something to someone, you could do something to someone, but because you want to be like Jesus, you will limit the things that you say. You will limit the things that you do so that you can grow in maturity and become more like Jesus. Meekness takes great strength and great power. To be meek instead of giving someone a piece of your mind. Patience, it says. Bearing with one another in, uh, um, in love. Bearing with one another. If, 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 if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Notice how much forgiveness is said there. If someone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So he's nailing this home because this is a weakness that we all tend to have. Patience means tolerating people. Tolerating putting up with stuff that is annoying. That is, that is, that is difficult to deal with. Being patient. Of another person's weaknesses and annoying ways. God is patient with you. You be patient with others. Bearing with one another. That means to put up with something, carrying others, and um, forgiving each other. Forgiveness is a big thing. If someone and, and, and it's not it's not um, living in a in a dream world. Someone, you could literally have a complaint against someone. A legitimate complaint. They did me wrong. They hurt me. They said something. They did something that was sinful and it hurt me. So you have a complaint. Well, Paul is saying here, as Jesus in the parable in Matthew 18 says the same thing, shouldn't you forgive that person as the Lord forgave you? When when you have a complaint against someone, think about all the complaints God had against you. One thing is true about forgiveness is that whoever God calls you to forgive, you have sinned infinitely more against God than this person has sinned against you. Because you've been sinning against God since the moment of your birth. And yet he has forgiven everything in your life. And so, and, and that's how he roots forgiveness. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. It's one of the identifiers of a follower of Jesus Christ is that they forgive people who sin against them. They don't hold grudges, they don't hold bitterness. How about you? We have to learn to forgive, and so what that means, obviously, is that it means that we have to be rooted in, on a daily basis, because people sin against us on a daily basis a lot of times, we have to be rooted in the fact that we have been forgiven, we have been loved, we have been chosen, we have been holy, Christ is interceding for our forgiveness, he's accomplished the work necessary for us to be forgiven forever, we have to be rejoicing in that reality, to be able to turn to someone who hurts us, who we have a complaint against, and say, I forgive you. And let it go. We've got to be rooted in the gospel. And it says in verse 14, above all these things, put on love. Which is another way of saying, be full of God, who is love. Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. We need to be full of the love of God. We have to be rooted in the love of God. You are, before any of these things are said, you're called beloved. And so don't do anything in the Christian life without first realizing that you are loved by God and Jesus Christ. You are loved by the one whose name is love. And that love binds everything together in harmony, perfect harmony. Harmony, it says at the end of verse 14. And then it says in verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The peace of Christ. Where does the peace of Christ come from? The peace of God comes through prayer. The realization that you are a child of God. That you are adopted by God. You're a son of God. And the, and the ones who who experience the peace of God are the ones who are a praying child of God, Uh, that you pray to God. You are persuaded that you are a child of God. You are um, what we can call a pining child. You are yearning for the accomplishment, the the finishing of the the, um, work of salvation in your life, that maturity on into glory. And you're a child who has been is being prayed for by the Spirit of God, and uh, you're a predestined child of God, and you're precious and protected. You see all of those things played out in Romans chapter 8. That's your birthright as a child of God. That's where peace comes from. It comes from praying, the peace of Christ ruling in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body. And it's experiencing that peace as a body, not simply as an individual. But the Bible says, don't be anxious about anything, but pray about everything. And and with petition and thanksgiving, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. And what comes behind that in verse 16 is, is that the word of Christ dwell in you richly full of scripture. When's the last time you broke the bread of life and read your Bible at length? You say you don't have time. I say get a, D, get a CD, get an MP3 player. We have time for other things, but we don't have time for the word of God. I've never met a person yet in my life who doesn't have time to read the Bible. Maybe someone being persecuted in in a in a country for their faith in Jesus and in the process of persecution they don't have time to sit down and read their Bible. But although their mind is probably full of the scripture, but I've never met a person in my life who has who has no time, no disposable time to read God's Word. I challenge myself, I challenge you to think about your days and how you can restructure stuff, how you can adjust things. We have time to look at the news. We have time to look at a TV show. We have time to um, do arts and crafts or something else. But we don't have time to read God's Word. Even if it's a few verses or a paragraph or simply a chapter, you have time. Think about it. Don't fight it. Think about it. Readjust your schedule. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, the Bible says. Richly does not mean I read one verse of Scripture a day. But it means that there's a, there's, a, there's a meditation on God's Word. It's not simply reading a passage and then closing the Bible and said, okay, I did, did my duty. But no, it's a meditating on that Word, a coming back to it in your thought and kind of, kind of working it over in your mind again and again until it dwells in you richly and it starts to shape you. It starts to, as it says in verse 16, teach and admonish one another. The Word of God dwells in you in such a way that it becomes a part of the fabric of your system and your conversation with other believers and you find yourself teaching one another and admonishing one another and and with all wisdom. And and what's tied to that is singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. If you and I cannot teach and admonish uh, each other in a way that leads us to worship, that leads us to thankfulness, then perhaps we should keep our mouths shut. But our, our our teaching and admonishing, admonishing means rebuking, correcting. And our teaching and correcting should lead us to worship. It should lead us to doxology because after all, none of us are perfect. None of us have it all figured out, But but we are leading one another back to Calvary we're leading one another back to the source and the substance of true spirituality we're leading one another back to Jesus because if we're if you tie this passage to to Colossians 1:28 him we proclaim warning everyone teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ and then it says teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness and so these these passages are tied together that the way we teach one another, the way we admonish one another is by proclaiming Jesus to one another. And that leads us into worship. And then uh, Paul Paul ends this, this uh, great passage in verse 17. Whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That everything we do is supposed to... Uh, to advance the name of Jesus Christ. Whatever we do in word and deed, you can remember Paul saying this in a different way in 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Here he's saying do all for the glory of Christ. It's it's Christ is God. And, and so whatever we do, we're to do it in such a way that you could sign Jesus' name to your actions and it wouldn't bring shame to him. And we're to do everything as an outflow and a response to who Jesus is and what he has accomplished for us. Very practically, if you're on your job and your boss has asked you to do something and you don't want to do it and you're upset with him or her, and uh, the Bible calls you to still do the work required, as long as it's it's lawful in God's sight, to do that work in such a way that that Jesus' name could be signed to it and he would not be brought to shame by it. Because you're doing your work, as it says in verses 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Whatever you do is service to Jesus Christ. It serves to advance the gospel. Um, and, and thanksgiving... Is a, is a topic in the book of Colossians that repeatedly comes up and up again. Many have identified and said that thankfulness is one of the identifiers of a follower of Jesus Christ. We are called to be grateful people. More than any other people on earth, we are called to be thankful. We have received so much more than everyone who doesn't know Jesus. And the people who don't know Christ, will they even want to know Christ by looking at your life? But when they see thankfulness, gratitude, such appreciation for who God is and what he's done, it's attractive even to a, a world dead in transgression and sin. So this, this Resurrection Sunday, as we think about Jesus being raised from the dead, we have been risen with him. We have been seated with Jesus in the heavenly places. And so we're called to put to death, to get rid of things in our life that are worldly and earthly and sinful and to put on Jesus Christ himself. These characteristics are the characteristics of Christ himself. And the way we go about it is by being filled richly with his word, richly with thanksgiving, richly with his peace through prayer. And we're to pursue those characteristics, that compassion, and kindness, and meekness, and humility, because we've been beloved. We've been set apart as holy. We have been chosen by God uh, forever. And so we give thanks and praise to Him. God bless you this Easter. Jesus Christ has risen, and He has risen indeed. May the world see very clearly in our lives that Jesus Christ is alive and well. As Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. May the world see Christ living in you. God bless you.